everybody. Welcome to episode three of The Secret Life of Elite Student Athletes, hosted by me, Hannah Kuha. Today, I'm joined by Deborah Tsai, a 25-year-old Olympian born in Singapore and currently living in Melbourne, Australia. Deborah competed at the 2016 Rio Olympic Games in artistic swimming before retiring in 2018 and moving to the discipline of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Deborah has also recently graduated from the University of Melbourne from the Juris Doctor program, having previously studied a Bachelor of Commerce at the University of Western Australia. Deb's currently working as a paralegal, and she's also a very excellent baker. So a very welcome guest on the show. Hello, Deb. How are you? Thanks for having me, Han. <laughs> Pretty stoked to have you on. I feel like everyone I speak to has these amazing, illustrious CVs, and then yours just comes out on top like, how does this woman exist? She's 25 <laughs> and done literally everything that the world has to offer. Do you look at all of that and think, damn, like five-year-old Deb never would have thought she'd be in this position? It's kind of weird because like when you're on the journey yourself, you don't really see all these milestones like you've hit you know like you don't ever look back and sort of see the whole picture and like it's almost like yeah you're just training you're just grinding from day to day and like I think for me like sort of my iconic moment moment was at world champs in 2015 like I got up we got up on stage after finishing our routine our last routine where we qualified for the olympics obviously um and like I was lining up on stage waiting for the scores and then my brain suddenly went, you just compete at Worlds. Like this is, you know, it, it was sort of that like weird, rec- but yeah, no, it's, you don't really see it when you're in it, I guess. So it's kind of funny to like see it from an outsider's perspective, I guess. Did you always think that, you know, growing up as a kid in Perth, like, yep, Olympics is on the horizon. This is what I want to do with my life. No. So I didn't seriously entertain the idea of the Olympics until I was about 16. Um, so I started in, I've been doing competitive sport for like 20 years now. I started in gymnastics when I was five. Um, and then I went to synchro when I was 13. Um, and when I started synchro, I had no idea, like it was even an Olympic sport. Like it was just like, I literally, I got too tall for gymnastics. Like I literally outgrew it. (laughs) And then, um, yeah, like my parents put me in synchro because it was sort of related and yeah like I had no idea and then suddenly like um after a couple of years um I started swimming when I was still living in Singapore then I moved to Perth and after a couple of years competing nationally um my parents got a call from Synchro Australia just saying do you want to try out for the national team like that was pretty much it and then like it sort of clicked like oh I could go all the way yeah what did you think when you received that call well like my first actual concern was that I wasn't an Australian citizen yet. Oh. So obviously that's a huge barrier. The legalities yeah, of the things legalities, started obviously. early, hey. Um, yeah. Um, but no, it was just really cool. So like I made my first, um, I was simultaneously on the senior and junior team um, from 16 to 18. Um, so I trialed for London, didn't quite make the cut um, for the final squad. Um, but ended up going off and competing with the junior team in 2012. And then 2013... I was on the senior team proper. Yeah, so that's sort of where that went. That's a pretty young age to be taking sports so seriously. I mean, you've always been pretty studious. Did you find it difficult as that kid to navigate both those worlds of elite performance in school, elite performance in sport, having a life on the side as well? Yeah, like I was I was sort of lucky in the sense of um, I didn't take my sport very, very seriously until I finished high school, pretty yeah. much. Like I... I did sort of take the time out and go, 
all right, finish year 12 and then like move on to uni. That's a bit more flexible. You know, we can work with that. Um, and even the first sort of year and a half of uni, I didn't have um, real competition between the two because I was just training and competing. And yeah, I, I missed class and stuff like that, but it wasn't serious. And then in 2015, which pre-Olympic year qualifiers, um, all that kind of stuff, it really did amp up. And that was the really messy season where um, my first semester, I actually, in 2015, I we actually had trials for world champs at AIS and I had to sit two exams the next day. Mm. So, I mean, like that, that was probably the like low point of my degree, but yeah. um, it was, it was hard to juggle for sure. Yeah. I feel like doing exams when you're literally at the most important event of your life, how do you get your brain in the right place? Do you find that challenging? It was hard. Um, it's sort of just like compartmentalizing everything, I guess. So it was very much like take it one day at a time, just, um, you know, do trial. It was, so, it was not even one day at a time, but like just breaking it down to like, even like, okay, we're going to do this routine today and we're going to do it like, for trials I think we did it four or five times so it was like oh we'll do routine one then we'll do two it was just like taking it a step at a time and not sort of worrying too much about what was going to come after surprisingly I actually did okay on those exams um <laughs> not entirely sure how that happened um but uh yeah I think I was also really stubborn like I yeah. I am I am the kind of personality that like if you tell me I can't do something I want to do it more so with my undergrad, definitely, people were like, oh, it's impossible. You can't finish your undergrad. Because I, I started my undergrad in mid-2012, and my goal was to finish it before Rio. And people were like, no, you can't do that. There's no way. Like, you're basically doing it full-time. You know, there's, no, there's just no way. And I was like, no, no, none of that. Um, I'm going to make this happen. Um, so, yeah, like, by a lot of creative juggling of like my units and stuff like I did make it happen like I graduated just before Rio which was nice because I was like otherwise I'm gonna have to come back to uni and do one unit or something stupid and I'm like nah and I'm an Olympian now <laughs> I'm not for long here no I love that but it takes so much strength to be able to look at all the people around you and say no like I'm not listening to that advice I'm not taking it on were yeah. the people in your inner circle supportive of your structuring around that or was it just a matter of locking out the outside voices yeah so like I mean, if you talk about the inner circle, I guess you got to start with family, right? And like yeah. my parents were always very much on the train of you should be a well-rounded person. So when I was doing synchro, um, they were like, you got to be studying in some capacity. Like, because for me, I mean, the university is not for everyone, but for me, that was definitely the route I wanted to pursue. Yeah. And so I discussed deferring and stuff like that. And my parents sort of said, look, you know, you can do it part-time but like you should have something else going on in your life that's not just swimming. And I think for me, that was the correct decision because I had a much more balanced life as a result, which is good. My careers advisor at WACE was a bit skeptical, but <laughs> she, when I was firm on what I wanted to do, she really did help make that happen. Again, it, it was just sort of like, yeah, knowing who to listen to, knowing who was going to help you out, I guess, communicating with people, managing that. There was just a lot going on. And like sometimes I look back on it, I'm like, that was hectic. <laughs> For sure. And sometimes it's almost like you've got to delegate your problems and delegate your, your concerns to yeah. people because you, as the star of the show, essentially, yeah. like 
you don't have time to be concerned about an exam. You need to kind of push that fear or that anxiety or whatever to someone else. Is that something that you've actively tried to create in your life, like people to go speak to about certain things? Or is it just that inner compartmentalization of like, no, I can take this all, like I'm taking on the world? I think it's more um, knowing when to ask for help really because like for me like I'm I'm also quite independent so like I like doing things myself and I like sort of getting on so the biggest learning thing for me I think was just knowing like when to ask for help because it's always there right but again as an independent person you don't really want to sort of run to to them every time you have like a small problem so like you got to figure out like what can't I handle And especially when you're blazing a trail, like literally there would be no one, I would suggest there's no one else in the world who has done the things that you've done. And I guess when it's creating this path of like, well, I'm studying commerce, but I want to go to the Olympics. And it's like, well, no one has experience in that. Did you feel lonely in that path? definitely in artistic swimming, um, it was sort of exceptional because, yeah, very few people, like all my teammates, they were doing really, really part-time uni or... Um, that deferred completely. Um, certainly, I don't think anyone was as invested in their studies as I was. And that's not anything on them. Like, everyone's sort of got their own way of juggling stuff. But, yeah, at times, like, it felt lonely within the synchro fraternity. But, like, you think about a lot of the great athletes that have come before. And this is all obviously a different era, but a lot of them were in the era where you could have your cake and eat it too. You know, you yeah. were expected to, say, go to the Olympics at an early age and then go off and... Do so, like so for example like Roger Bannister the first man to break the four minute mile he he was a doctor you know like it, the, the two things are actually quite complementary I always sort of thought about like those people that had both and there's no reason why not and then now you've completely flipped the tail again and went yep gonna call my retirement and then now Brazilian jiu-jitsu yeah how did this all come about so after Rio I was originally quite keen on going to Tokyo yeah um and couple things happened that sort of made me reevaluate that. Um, I Obviously, I started law school, which was a big thing. And I decided that I wasn't willing to sort of sacrifice all the opportunities I would have on that side yeah. to do the Olympics again. And um, yeah, so and, and I sort of felt that my time in the sport was up for me personally. Like I'd gone and I'd done everything I wanted. So I started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu sort of as a new challenge for myself. Like it was sort of to keep fit in a sense I tried it as a recreational thing and that lasted about six weeks um, <laughs> this doesn't surprise me in the slightest yeah so literally I signed up for my first comp six weeks after I started and I did that comp about two and a half months after I started three months oh my god! because that's just how, how you this are <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's been it's been crazy. It's a very different sport, but there are lots of really applicable things. Um, like even just learning movements in BJJ, it's not that much different to learning like routines in swimming, you know. But obviously, there are lots of differences. Like this is a full combat sport. Yeah, you know. Even from an identity perspective, like you've been doing a bit of dancing in the water kind of thing, and now it's, you know, Mortal Kombat. You've <laughs> flip, absolutely flipped the tables on that. From an identity perspective, has it challenged you to be like, I'm no longer Deb the swimmer or um, Deb the synchro girl, but now I am a fighter? Not really, I don't think, because 
I never really identified hugely with my sport. Like, I think for me, it's that compartmentalization thing. Like, the swimming part of me is very different to me in regular life and very different to me at uni. That's how I view it anyway. It's essentially like three different people. I said something to a friend once where I sort of said, I don't want the Olympics to define the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. And so I never identified very strongly with sort of that sporting identity, I guess, which is, it's almost like sacrilegious to say that because, (laughs) you know, as an athlete, you're meant to like your world, your sport is your world. And for me, I was like, it's a part of my world. Yeah. Um, So no, I didn't really have a serious identity crisis or anything. I had the like standard like retirement pains where like, you know, like you're like, oh, like I should get up and go to training today. Oh, wait, I don't have to. Yeah. But um, definitely swimming has impacted how I approach BJJ in the sense of like there's that nagging feeling of guilt if you miss a session and you're like, no one's forcing me to go to training. Like I, I go to training, my coach is there, I do the thing. It's more like BJJ works around my life instead of me arranging my life around it kind of thing. Let's talk about uni now and law school. We've spoken about the intensity of sports and competing at such a high level. Have you found that to be the same in the law school? Oh, yeah, actually. The law school is an interesting place. Uh, <laughs> no, I <laughs> One word, interesting. Interesting. No, actually, um, obviously, being Melbourne, there are lots of bright people. In my cohort, I made a lot of very good friends. Um, but definitely, I think for me, the fact that I came from an elite sports background meant that I was a lot less stressed throughout law school because it's like, it sounds so like blase, but like when you've already competed in front of 10,000 people, like getting up and speaking, for example, getting up and speaking in a moot court, it sounds, it's like, it's not even an event. Even like exam stress, like you think about exam stress and you're like, oh, you have to perform on the day. Like that's actually quite transferable from sport. Like you have to perform on the day, right? So actually, I think being an athlete helped me cope with law school better. Yeah. I mean, I got okay grades, good enough to get employed. (laughs) Um, No, but uh, I, I definitely didn't get like top, top grades, but still like I think I did manage a work life or study life balance that was much better than a lot of my classmates. And that's because of my elite sports background. Do you think that the culture of perhaps law schools particularly could improve by taking more of a sporty angle? Definitely a little bit. Um, Just because if you think about it, like if you break it down to basics, the mentality is actually quite similar. Again, you've got a whole bunch of high achievers doing what they do best in this like sort of pressure cooker environment yeah like I think we could sort of take a leaf out of sport um anything in particular that you'd take I mean like there's plenty of lip service paid to mental health in the legal profession for example and that's actually something that really irritates me because this is going to sound very very harsh but law students and the legal profession as a whole, they like to act as if their mental health issues are unique or special. And honestly, you see a lot of the same issues in sport. So it's that, you know, it's like always planning for the worst case scenario, that anxiety, the... Because, I mean, I think the stats are mostly about anxiety, depression, um, 
and alcohol abuse. Uh, so, but if you think about it, like a lot of the same elements that cause those um, issues to become prevalent in law are also really prevalent in sport. And from a sports psychology point of view, you know, you're looking at it as a performance exercise. Yeah. Um, and lawyers, I think, would be benefited if they saw seeking help, say from a psych, um, as a you know, how can I make my performance better instead of I'm broken and I need help? Yeah. It's that mentality switch around, you know? Um, Seeking that elite 1% improvement exactly. rather than waiting for it all to come crashing yeah. down. Yeah, yeah. I think that's something interesting and particularly something that sport's doing well at the moment is the whole acting as society's um, ray of sunshine in terms of look, we've got all these mental health advocates, we've got speak people speaking out, like we are breaking the stigma. And I think as an athlete, sometimes it still feels like clearly there's many issues, but the fact that we're all looking at sport to be this leader is something that feels kind of funny as an athlete, I guess. Yeah, and um, I think it definitely, it's, it definitely comes from the fact that in sport, um, definitely my experience has been, we treat mental health as part of the whole package. So it's like you you can't just be, you know, physically with it. you got to be mentally um, prepared. And it's not just mental mental health in the sense of, like, dealing with mental issues. It's dealing with performance issues. Like, how can I make performance better? And um, that's a very different view from society generally, which is very much like, you're seeing the psych like really you know mm. whereas as athletes like we treat that as normal yeah like i can't think off the top of my head anyone i know performing at the elite level who hasn't seen who a doesn't have yeah yeah i mean you have to perform in so many different pressure cooker environments how are you so mentally resilient and you know got your life together i honestly just think i don't take anything too seriously <laughs> No, but like really, like I mean, it's it's kind of it's weird to say because obviously, like I I'm competitive, I want to do well, like you know, or whatever I do. But like honestly, at the end of the day, it's like it's almost sort of stepping back and going, but did you die? Like, <laughs> <laughs> which sounds really funny, right? Like, yeah. it's like okay, like that didn't quite go as planned, but did you die? Like, no. exactly, right? Yep. Yeah. Um. Actually, this is a conversation I had with my sports psych immediately before trials for the Olympics, he actually, he said to me, so, you know, on the, on the off chance that you, and I was in the really privileged position of, I was extremely likely to make the Olympic team. Yeah. Um, and he was like, on the off chance that, you know, you have a really, really bad day and you don't make the team. What are you planning to do? What's your plan B? And I literally, I turned around, I didn't even bat an eyelid. And I just said to him, I'm going to law school. Um, because Melbourne had already given me an offer and I'd accepted it and I, like, I didn't even, I didn't even blink. I was just yeah. like, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to go to law school. So, so be it. Did and, it ever concern you having that sense of like the foot in both camps? Like, did you ever worry about your lack of investment in one thing or the other that you were always in between the two? Yeah, a little bit. Like, obviously, um, there are lots of people that have the all or nothing approach and yeah. it works out well for them. I actually think for me, I it, I think it's it's two things. It's knowing where to set your boundaries and knowing like what works for you. Yeah. So for me, I preferred that balanced lifestyle. Um, but obviously sport at that point still took priority. Yeah. Um, 
and like I arranged my studies around sport rather than the other way around um, because making the Olympic team was the priority. Um, and it was really hard sometimes to sort of just like face down all that like no like you should defer you should drop it you should drop a subject and I and like I just had to go no that's not my plan yeah um although I think part of it's driven from the fear of if I don't go all in on this what if I fall short and I don't make the cut you know we could talk about like the the strange psychology behind that forever but um I think some people are more on the, I got to go all in. So even if I don't make the cut, I can't, I don't have any unanswered questions about no what is, no regrets. And whereas for me, I was a bit more like, I've got my priorities straight. Um, and for the balance of having that sort of downtime is, is good for me and is better for my performance. I think we're all starting to figure out that balance is essentially a myth. Yeah. Balance looks very different for a lot of people. But I think at the end of the day, it is being able to look at yourself in the mirror and be happy with the fact that like, I just gave it a crack yeah. and not being too harsh on yourself. Is being harsh on yourself something that you've had to um, continually refine in your life or you've always taken like that kind of forgiving angle um, at the end of the day? I think I'm only harsh on myself if I think I could have done more. Yeah. Yeah. And back to the whole issue of like juggling study and swimming, I sort of looked at it and I went, no, I couldn't have done more. Yeah. So I sort of made my peace with that. It's easy for me to say because obviously that's not how it panned out. But if, I think that even if I hadn't made that team, I would still have been happy with what I'd done. Whereas I know some people are the other way. They would not, they would have gone, oh, you know, if I just deferred that semester, if I'd done this, if I'd done that. Does it make you reflect and think about whether you have regrets in life and things like that? I think you're always going to have regrets. Like you're always going to have that like, oh, if I'd done this, I could have had that. Um, But you got to sort of look at what you've got and I guess celebrate that, you know? For example, like I'm not going to be a dual Olympian, but I've got my degree. Yeah. You know, I've got a job, like I've got, you know, all these other things happening in my life and um, it's going up, but in a different way. So with 2020 just starting and you're about to tackle a whole heap of new challenges, I'm quite interested, Deb, looking toward 2020, what's on the cards for you? Um, well, the, the joke I have with my friends at the moment is I'd really love to get a puppy, but that's probably not going to happen um, because life. Uh, <laughs> but the main focus is definitely starting work. Yeah. Um, everything else is sort of taking a little bit of a backseat until I can figure out how to balance it all. You know what? Yeah. I think get the work done in the next year, 2021, we have can have a chat about what you're going to call your first dog. <laughs> Deb, thank you so, so much for coming Thanks, in and speaking to me.